Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Sawcox. In this week's edition of Insight, it's doom, gloom, and boom for the industry. And we get into a bit of Greek mythology. By the beard of Zeus, the severe weather just keeps getting worse. Is there an end in sight? We should be Sublaki. Poseidon jokes are tried and tested, but when it comes to severe flooding, is the New South Wales government mything the point? And I Hades to have to bring this up. But zero code of practice breaches being reported is not necessarily the good news we're hoping for. Hello, everyone. This week, I'm joined by Deputy Editor Wendy Pugh, Chairman Terry McMullen, and Editor John Deeks. Hello, Wendy. Good morning, Andrew. Greek mythology has always been my Achilles elbow. What about you? <laughs> I actually know nothing about it at all. I'm, I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> I have to study up. <laughs> Clearly, you and me both. Hello, Terry. Good morning. As they say, what Athens in Greece stays in Greece. Oh, shit. Have you got a book of Greek puns sitting around there? Unfortunately, this is the only skill I um I bring to this podcast. <laughs> Good morning, John. Hello. Should I apologize for those puns? Yeah, definitely. Keeps the listeners interested, though, I'm sure. Well, that's not what they say. But anyway, so from the ridiculous to the regrettable, the projections for severe weather this summer just keep getting worse, don't they, John? Yes, they do, unfortunately. So the Bureau of Meteorology this week put out its long-range severe weather forecast for the upcoming severe weather season. Yeah, of course, we were expecting uh, projections of flooding. As we know, we're into this third La Nina in a row, and we're seeing some bad weather around at the moment, as anyone watching the news will be well aware of. But it's not just the flooding, unfortunately. The, the Bureau is also predicting a higher than usual number of cyclones this cyclone season and uh, bushfire is still a still a concern in some areas so you might think with all the rain around we, we don't have to worry about bushfire but in australia i'm afraid that's not the case in certain certain areas it's it's still above normal risk and then there's heat waves so uh, yeah there, there could be some very prolonged and severe heat waves this this summer. So it's pretty much the full the full range of concerns this uh, severe weather season. So yeah, read our story on online and we'll run through it all for you. Well, in one effort to protect some parts of New South Wales from severe flooding, the government is prioritising raising the Oragamba Dam wall. Yeah, that's right. So this has been talked about for for some time and. Uh, the New South Wales government has recently said that this raising of the wall by 14 metres is is a critical project for the for the area. Now, uh, insurers have responded in, in an interesting way. They're, they're not sure about this uh, at all because uh, it's it's a long term project, and the ICA believes that there are other ways that they could make more of a difference. Spending that money in the shorter term. Uh, Alliance also put out some information about uh, temporary measures that could assist uh, by basically lowering the the level of the water uh, held by the dam during La Nina years to try and avoid it spilling and, uh, and and making flood situations worse. The ICA is also concerned about the sort of environmental impact of raising the dam wall. So I guess these debates are going to continue, but it looks like the New South Wales government is pretty committed to this project. Well, I know, even I know we've been talking about this damn dam for uh, some time. Wouldn't you expect insurers to support this kind of mitigation, Terry? 
Well, you might think so, and certainly uh, it, they have in the past. Up to February last year, the, the Insurance Council had a, a, a basic policy that the community benefits of a higher dam wall would outweigh what it called fundamentally regrettable rare flooding of environmental resources, which sounds very undiplomatic. But last year, the council did a fantastically agile backflip and it, it showed the industry is going to take a much wider view on mitigation and future to in, in, include impacts they once wouldn't have cared much about. And that's supported by the fact the council reached this decision in, in uh, consultation with its Indigenous Advisory Council. A, a move that dramatic would have required board approval as well. I would have loved to have heard that conversation. So, yeah, things have changed a lot. Well, Wendy, you spoke to a global expert from Aon about climate change and the energy transition. What did they have to say? Well, yes, their uh, global head of climate strategy, uh, Richard Dudley, has been visiting Australia and, and talking about the role of insurance in resilience and supporting the transition to net zero. Um, so as he points out, there are a lot of um, companies and investors looking to put money into new technologies, which which obviously don't have a long track record. Uh, and the more insurance uh, can find products and ways to, to help reduce the risks around that, the more likely that spending is going to happen. So, you know, once you can put some insurance in place, banks and others are more likely to come on board. Um, and that just speeds up the process, really. Well, like so many other things, Terry, we can only get to where we need to with the insurer's support. That's true. Aon speaking from a position of, how do I put this, knowing what's going to happen but unsure about really how what's going to happen happens. Um, if you see what I mean, but but seriously, they're, they're working on it. Catastrophes are, are driving the industry to find new ways of effectively covering climate change-related risks. So, uh, yes, I'd... I found that a really interesting article. Technology, innovation, and I suspect a, a heap of flexibility from insurers is what it's all about. Well, on another note, you would have thought the brokers not reporting a single code of practice breach would be applauded. But why is the Code Compliance Committee not happy, Wendy? Uh, yeah, the committee wasn't happy that over half the code subscribers hadn't reported any breaches. So there's a code team that oversees five industry codes, including the broker's code. And the head of that, Prue Monument, says that even firms with the best compliance frameworks in place can have something go wrong somewhere. So to have so many subscribers with no apparent breaches su suggests that actually breaches are happening, but they're going undetected or unreported. They do note that the breach reporting rules will be more stringent in the new broker code starting next month. So you, you'd expect to see those numbers rise and they'll be watching that pretty closely. Uh, and if necessary, they'll be getting in touch with subscribers to see what's going on with their systems and processes. Do you think this approach is fair, John? Yeah, well, well, I see, I see what the committee is saying, I suppose, but um, it does seem a bit tough on on those who are genuinely doing the right thing and not having having any breaches to report. But you know, will the committee ever be happy? I guess is is one question. But another question, I suppose, is should it be this easy for 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 broking firms to be able to 
say they have no breaches if in fact they do have breaches. So, I mean, does there need to be more proactive investigation, I suppose, is what I'm saying from from the Code Com- Compliance Committee to actually wheedle out these breaches that they say must exist. We look forward to the new code and, and seeing what effect that has. Um, but I guess I guess um, what the Code Com- Committee is really looking for is, is honesty in the first place and then improvement uh, after that. Orenda Yelso, our regulatory section this week is dominated by the issue of psychological workers' compensation claims. What's going on? Both the Victorian and New South Wales schemes have reported an increase in the percentage of psychological injury claims and have also highlighted the fact that it takes longer for people with those claims to return to work. Um, Victoria says that um, three quarters of workers with a physical injury are back on the job in six months, uh, while only 40% of workers with a, a mental injury return within that time. So it's become a real focus. So iCare in New South Wales has just announced contracts for six claim service providers under a new model starting next year and four of those will have a dedicated psychological claims case manager and there's also a New South Wales parliamentary committee which reviews the workers comp scheme every two years and the review that's underway at the moment has a specific focus on psychological claims and they're having a few hearings so it's it's really getting a lot of focus at the moment. Should we have seen this coming, Terry? Oh, there's a good question. (laughs) Look, it it came as a surprise to me but I, I see that the Lawyers Alliance says the incidence of psychological injury isn't really the problem, um, but the way that claims are being handled is. And as most of these claims would involve insurers as agents of the state workers' comp systems, uh, I think it's something that we should do some more digging on, really, before we we can really see if there there is a major problem or exactly what seems to be causing it. So I'm passing this one over to you, John. I guess with with COVID and all of the impacts of that, we we could have expected an increase in mental health issues. I suppose it's not a massive surprise that that's happened. Well, finally, John, let's revisit the Optus situation. Is it going to be a class action? And how much am I going to get? Yes, well, that's a good question. We we had a look in the um, in the newsletter this week at this class action that has been suggested that could happen over the data breach, which exposed 10 million customers' data. And a couple of University of Newcastle law academics had a look at this, and they say there's a strong basis to believe that a class action would be successful. Now, in terms of how much you might get, they say that it could result in billions in compensation being awarded, uh, which sounds like a lot, but then... um, you have, you have to remember that there could be 10 million plaintiffs. So journalists are not very good at maths, but I just typed in 1 billion divided by 10 million and it comes to $100, Andrew. So <laughs> this, 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 could, this, could not, this could well not be a life-changing amount of money, but uh, nonetheless, Optus could find themselves with a very large bill. Are you saying this is not a license to print money? Yes, that's right. Does this have any insurance implications, Terry? Oh, lots, Andrew, lots. Look, I can't imagine that Optus isn't covered against exposure to our notorious class actions. Uh, They're a wholly owned uh, company of Singtel. So it's most likely that, that this sort of cover would have been placed internationally. 
if we discover who and and where, <laughs> then we'll let you know. But yeah, it it does have insurance implications, and it it's also a fairly good indication of just how frightening Australia's class action system really is. Well, on that note, that brings us to the end of this week's Insight podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to a panel, John Deeks, Wendy Pugh and Terry McMullen. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Insight podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google and all your favourite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week. Thank you.